0: hi everyone this is marlene with miami ghost chronicle stories of the supernatural and today i have uh gone ahead and dug up an old true crime uh unsolved murder mystery that occurred in 1910 and i've titled it the chicago sex fiend murder on a frigid winter day in january of 1910 the chicago headlines trumpeted chicago fiend Whitechapel Ripper. The reason for the sensational story was based on the opinion of Assistant Police Chief Schutler following the coroner's report for a postmortem completed on the body of Mrs. Jenny Cleghorn, also known as Anna Furlong. She had been found mutilated and decapitated in the South Side rooming house, which doubled as a brothel situated over a saloon owned by James Seeley at 1702 Armour Avenue, also given as 51 West 17th Street. Little did the police or the public know that this grisly crime was only the beginning. The year was 1910. Only a few years before, Lizzie Borden was acquitted of killing her parents and Jack the Ripper had stalked the streets of London. Closer to home, H.H. H. Holmes had lured his victims who were visiting Chicago to his notorious murder castle and swung from the gallows in 1896. The police believed the murderer had crept into the woman's flat while she slept, but there was a mystery as to how he had gained entry. He then strangled her, since her trachea had been crushed, and then, with a dull knife, he went on to chop, hack, and slash the woman's body. Other stories describe it was believed an axe had been used for the crime. The police found her body clad only in a nightgown. The room reflected that the woman had fought terribly for her life. The furniture and walls of the room were splattered with blood. The killer cut out her heart and other organs and then replaced them inside the body cavity. In an effort to hide her identity, he took the head. Her scalp had been torn from her skull and was found with an ear attached under the bed wrapped in bed clothing the police also found that the incisions made on the body were done with surgical skill the following is one of the stories printed about the horrid discovery in a local newspaper the head could not be found but part of the right ear and a scalp above it remained on the bed the dull knife which was used to sever the head had also been used freely on the trunk Across the abdomen were half a dozen long slashes, and the knife had evidently been plunged several times into the vitals. The police immediately detained Tilly Taylor, proprietress of the house, of which Miss Furlong was an inmate and one other woman. That the Furlong woman had been brought up to a life of refinement was indicated by the neatness and care with which she kept her effects. Her nails were carefully manicured, and much fashionable clothing was found in closets of her room. From the appalling brutality the police are included to believe it was inspired either by insane jealousy or revenge on the part of some enemy. A score of detectives were sent out to look up all the women's men's acquaintances with a view of discovering, if possible, what enemies she had. This printed in the Dayton Herald, dated January twentieth, 1910. Anna was later identified as Jenny Cleghorn. Rooming houses above saloons were brothels, and as observed by the police officers who visited the scene, she appeared to come from a genteel background. Witnesses who knew her said that she had described where she had once possessed considerable property in Inglewood, which her husband had made her convert into cash, after which he abandoned her for another woman. She was deserted by former friends and drifted to the underworld of St. Louis, and there she remained until five or six months before her murder, when she had moved back to Chicago. Jenny's scalped hair was found, done up in the bedclothes that lay in a corner of the room, and on January 24th, Jenny's head was found in a vacant lot at 251 Armour Avenue, where the police believe it had been thrown since the day of the murder. Once the doctors had a chance to examine the body, they concluded that the heart and the organs had been cut out and then replaced into the body's cavity again. Shortly after the murder, the police were considering several of the visitors or rumors as suspects and detained them, even going to Louisville to bring one of them back to Chicago. Eventually, they were all released and the police had no leads. But that changed a few months later, when another murder was committed. Now, as we said before, one day after Anna Furlong was found murdered, six blocks away at 251 Armour Avenue, two small boys came across something wrapped and frozen inside four towels. It was the victim's head, with her mouth cut from ear to ear. The skull was crushed. Now, the following came to the attention of the coroner, the name of hoffman during his investigation he noted that there was a coincidence that on the same date of january 20th two years before almost to the hour another woman was murdered she was found in lake michigan off jackson park she was nude and the corpse was headless a portion of the lower jaw clung to the torso the top of the head was completely missing most of the bones in the body were broken and the police wondered if the body had also been caught in a steamer's propellers. They estimated that the woman was about 25 years old, stood 5 feet 5 inches, and was blonde. She had been nude when she went into the water, one month to two weeks before the discovery of the body. The theory was entertained if both of these women had been victims of some secret cult or organization that used this date as a special anniversary. This woman, found in Lake Michigan, was never identified. During those days, right after the discovery of Jenny Cleghorn's body, a man by the name of Eugene Clegghorn of Geneva, Wisconsin, came forward to identify himself as the victim's husband, but stated that he would have nothing further to do with the case, and he went back to Wisconsin. The authorities wondered if these women had been killed by the same person, in May, four months after Jenny Cleghorn's death, another victim was found murdered. She was killed in a west side rooming house located at 133 South Morgan Street, with her head nearly severed and the body terribly slashed. The young woman's body was found fully clothed within 10 hours of her death. The room exhibited evidence of a terrific struggle. The golden-haired girl remained unidentified as well. On June of 1910, a man by the name of Galasco and Chevy was arrested for the murder of Jenny Clegghorn. It appeared he had told several persons that he had committed the murder. When police searched his room, they found a book on surgery, a pair of surgeon's shears, and a dirk knife that appeared stained with blood. After his arrest, he was sent to Cook County Insane Asylum at Dunning. Then he was deported to his native Bulgaria where he escaped from an insane asylum, then smuggled himself back into the United States. Two years passed, and the newspapers reported on the death of the Fanschmidt family. They claimed it was the work of the Axemen, who had killed several families in the Midwest and had returned to Illinois. The family consisted of the parents and their daughter Blanche and a fourth person, Miss Emma Maypen. They were killed in the house, and then it was burnt down. The newspaper said the number of the Axeman's victim totaled 26. By 1914, Assistant Chief Schuttler suspected that Gillespie and Chevy, the confessed slayer of Jenny Cleghorn, was the Axeman. He wrote incoherent taunting letters to Schuttler. It was during these years that the various killings of families throughout the Midwest were reported. Schuttler described each murder occurred just after the change of the moon from the last dark quarter and always on Sunday night, which alienists reported as when most lunatics were active. The crimes were committed as the killer moved eastward along railroad lines. In 1914, another family had been slain on Blue Island again with the use of an axe. What became known as the Midwest Axeman murders were never solved, as were the killings of the three women in Chicago, between 1910 to 1912. Was it the work of the same person? This question also remains unanswered. The following is the story of the Axeman murders and you make up your mind. Houston Heights, Texas was founded by Oscar Martin Carter in 1891. It was the first planned community in Texas. In 1910 it was separated from Houston by about a mile but linked by streetcars and railroads Houston at that time was a city of 78,000 people Houston Heights was annexed by Houston in 1918 on the night of Friday March 11th 1910 Gus Schultz a lineman with Houston Electric hosted a sort of entertainment for family and friends with his wife Alice at their home at 732 Ashland Street in Houston Heights. The Schultzes lived in an unpainted three-room cottage 50 feet from the Missouri-Kansas Texas Railroad. There was beer, piano, guitar, and good company. The couple partied pretty hard considering they had two young children, a three-year-old girl named Bessie and a six-month-old who may have been a boy and who may have been named Sandy, although accounts are not consistent. The house was in a segregated white area one block over from the black part of the neighborhood the Schultz was 23 Alice was 21 at the party she wore a tight fitting low-cut pink dress that showed several inches of her legs provocative in that era when dresses normally covered the tops of the shoes for several days following March 11th there was no sign of life around the Schultz house the house was locked up tight and all of the curtains have been drawn. An African-American woman named Maggie Nelson did the Schultz's laundry. On Wednesday, March 16th, Miss Nelson found the laundry from the previous week still hanging on the clothesline, the house still locked, and the Schultz's guns visible underneath their house. Miss Nelson talked to a neighbor lady who had also been concerned about the family, and the neighbor lady called the sheriff. The sheriff pulled the guns out, From under the house, there were two rusty rifles and a shotgun and recognized the smell of death emanating from the residence. Late in the day on March 16th, police broke into the house where they found the bodies of five people, two men, a woman, and the two small children. All five had apparently been murdered with an axe. The bodies had been piled on top of one another and Mrs. Schultz, Alice, was found nude except for a thin night's shirt. The little girl Bessie was also found almost nude. There was blood all over the walls. The crime scene was described as the most gruesome of all the tragedies that have occurred in and about Houston. The stench in the house was so overpowering that police had to open the windows for several hours before they could begin the investigation. A swarm of flies filled the room where the bodies were found. The first thought was that Schultz had found his wife with another man, had murdered the two of them, then killed the children, and taken his own life. This theory was abandoned when it was discovered that Schultz had been hit in the back of the head with an axe or some other blunt instrument, and also that his body was on the bottom of the body pile, suggesting that he may have been the first to die. The extra dead man in the house was Walter Eichmann, who had been living with the Schultz family and, well we have to get to it sometime, was apparently enjoying intimate relations with Alice Schultz. Eichmann was not her only lover, nor even her favorite. Whether the relationship is more accurately described as open marriage or sex work is not entirely clear. But men who were not her husband often gave Mrs. Schultz expensive gifts. Alexander Horton Sheffield was one of those men. He signed his name a. H. and went by the name of Sandy, the same name as the Schultz's baby. Sheffield, although he was a married man with two children, had lived in the Schultz house until Eichmann moved in. Sheffield was tall, handsome, and came from a family with money. Shopping recently for jewelry, Alice Schultz had volunteered to the jeweler that Sheffield was the only man she had ever loved or ever would. Eichmann, also married, was the brother-in-law of the man who actually owned the house. While Sheffield lived there, they had told neighbors that he was Mrs. Schultz's stepbrother, although this was not true. A previous landlady had evicted the family because of the odd relationship between Alice and Sandy. After moving out, Sheffield had continued to visit Mrs. Schultz frequently. About twenty-four hours after the bodies were discovered, Sheffield was arrested in connection with the crime. He would live in the shadow of the charges for more than three years, although there was never any real evidence against him. Sheffield had attended the dance at the Schultz house on March 11th in the company of a 17-year-old girl. Sheffield was 27. He had returned for a visit on the following Sunday under somewhat odd circumstances. Passing by the Schultz house, he had seen a cow wandering loose about to destroy the laundry hanging on the line he knocked on the door but was unable to rouse the family because of course they were all dead he had put the cow back in the pasture and then tried again to get someone to come to the door that failing he had made a curious remark to a neighbor to the effect that the family must all have gone boating and had drowned sheffield also told police that he had seen the three guns stacked in the Schultz house on Friday night and he had seen them under the house on Sunday. None of the weapons had been fired in a long time. Sheffield, who worked as an engineer for a brewery, emphatically denied any knowledge of the crime and gave a rational explanation for the curious remark to the neighbor. He said that he knew that the family intended to go boating on Saturday. When the family seemed to have disappeared, His only thought was that they had not returned from the boating expedition. The explanation made sense, and Sheffield was released at the time. Eichmann was found with a mosquito net covering his head, and Bessie, with her head, shoved down into the bedclothes. The sheriff theorized that either the murderer had spent considerable time in the house after the crime, or he had returned to the house a day later. All of the bodies had been found stacked in one room, but large pools of dried blood were found in a different room. There were no indications of a robbery. The house had not been ransacked, and no weapon was found in the house. An axe was later found in a nearby well with stains still visible on the handle, although the axe had been sitting partially submerged in water. Several days into the investigation, the sheriff told a reporter that the only thing he could figure was that the crime was committed by a fiend who may have developed a homicidal mania and satisfied his lust for blood, and who had disappeared via the train track after the crime. As time passed, the sheriff began to feel pressure to solve the crime and began to rummage about for a prosecutable candidate. The sheriff was Archie Anderson. Some weeks after the murders, a woman named Lydia Howell, also reported with the last name of Powell, had a mental breakdown. She had been at the party the night the Schultzes were murdered and was much affected by the murders. She was convicted of lunacy and sent to an insane asylum. Later still, a man named Frank Turney was arrested in connection with the crime. He had also been at the party. Pressured by police, Turney confessed to his involvement in the murders and implicated Sheffield as well as Lydia Howell. His story was that the three of them had waited after the dance until the family fell asleep and that Sheffield had murdered the family with a window weight, while he guarded one door, and Miss Howell guarded the other. Turney said that he knew nothing about the murders until after the deed was done. In July 1911, more than a year after the crime, Sheffield and Turney were indicted by a grand jury. Sheffield was released on bond on October of that year and was scheduled to go on trial for the murders on December 4, 1911. It appears that Turney was a vulnerable man who told police the story they wanted to hear after being pressured and perhaps beaten by the police and also promised by the police that he would not be prosecuted. Once he was out of police custody, he began to say that the story he had told police was not true. After he reneged on the account, the police attempted to prosecute him as well as Sheffield, but without Turney's story, they had no case against Sheffield or Turney. All the evidence they had, other than the odd relationship between Alice and Sheffield, was Turney's story, which pretty much everybody knew was a police fabrication. In December of 1911, Sheffield was free on bond, but Turney, who had accused Sheffield under a promise of immunity, remained in jail. Sheffield's trial was postponed from December until the following April, and then postponed until October. The prosecution was stalling for time, still hoping to put together a case somehow. In October 1912, Turney was released from custody and the prosecutor acknowledged that his confession would not hold up in court. In May of 1913, three years after the crime, the charges against Sheffield were quietly dismissed. Despite his blatant infidelity, Sheffield's wife stuck with him throughout the ordeal. He returned to his employer, had another son and lived almost 60 years after the crime, passing away in 1968. Lydia Howe regained her sanity, was released from the insane asylum in 1913 and left Houston Heights for unknown places in 1916. The house at 732 Ashland Street no longer stands and the nearby railroad line is now a bike path. However, the theory has always been that the Schultz's murder was only one of several committed by the same person. Here's another one of those crimes, this one more easily recognizable, partly due to the amount of hauntings that are tied to the place of where this crime was committed. Shortly after midnight on June tenth, 1912, a stranger hefting an axe lifted the latch on the back door of a two-story timber house in the little iowa town of Eliska, the door was not locked crime was not the sort of thing you worried about in a modestly prosperous midwest settlement of no more than two thousand people all known to one another by sight and the visitor was able to slip inside silently and close the door behind him then according to a reconstruction attempted by the town coroner the next day he took an oil lamp from a dresser removed the chimney, and placed it out of the way under a chair, bent the wick in two to minimize the flame, lit the lamp, and turned it down so low it cast only the faintest glimmer in the sleeping house. Still carrying the axe, the stranger walked past one room in which two girls, ages 12 and 9, lay sleeping and slipped up the narrow wooden stairs that led to two other bedrooms. He ignored one in which four more young children were sleeping, and crept into the room in which 43-year-old Joe Moore lay next to his wife, Sarah. Raising the axe high over his head, so high it gouged the ceiling, the man brought the flat of the blade down on the back of Joe Moore's head, crushing his skull and probably killing him instantly. Then he struck Sarah a blow before she had time to awake or register his presence. Leaving the couple, dead or dying, the killer went next door and used the axe, Joe's own probably taken from where it had been left in the coal shed to kill the four more children as they slept. Once again, there is no evidence that Herman 11, Catherine 10, Boyd 7 or Paul 5 woke before they died, nor did the assailant or any of the four children make sufficient noise to disturb Catherine's two friends, Lena and Ina Stillinger, as they slept downstairs. The killer then descended the stairs and took his axe to the Stillinger girls, the elder of whom may finally awakened an instant before she too was murdered. What happened next marked the Villis' killings as truly peculiar and still sends shivers down the spine a century after the fact. The axe man went back upstairs and systematically reduced the heads of all six moors to bloody pulp striking Joe alone an estimated 30 times and leaving the faces of all six members of the family unrecognizable. He then drew up the bedclothes to cover Joe and Sarah's shattered heads, placed a gauze undershirt over Herman's face and a dress over Catherine's, covered Boyd and Paul as well, and finally administered the same terrible post-mortem punishment to the girls downstairs before touring the house and ritually hanging clothes over every mirror, piece of glass in it. At some point, the killer also took a two-pound slab of uncooked bacon from the icebox, wrapped it in a towel, and left it on the floor of the downstairs bedroom, close to a short piece of keychain that did not, apparently, belong to the Moors. He seems to have stayed inside the house for quite some time, filling a bowl with water and, some later reports said, washing his bloody hands in it. Sometime before 5 a.m. he abandoned the lamp at the top of the stairs and left as silently as he had come locking the doors behind him. Taking the house keys, the murderer vanished as the Sunday sun rose red in the sky. The moors were not discovered until several hours later when a neighbor, worried by the absence of any sign of life in the normally boisterous household, telephoned Joe's brother Ross and asked him to investigate. Ross found a key on his chain that opened the front door, but barely entered the house before he came rushing out again, calling for Valeska's Marshal, Hank Horton. That set in train a sequence of events that destroyed what little hope there may have been of gathering useful evidence from the crime scene. Horton brought along doctors J. Clark Cooper and Edgar Ho and Wesley Ewing, the minister of the Moores Presbyterian Congregation. They were followed by the county coroner, L.A. Lindquist and a third doctor, F. S. Williams, who became the first to examine the bodies and estimate a time of death. When a shaken doctor Williams emerged, he cautioned members of the growing crowd outside Don't go in there, boys, you'll regret it until the last day of your life. Many ignored the advice. As many as one hundred curious neighbors and townspeople tramped as they pleased through the house, scattering fingerprints, and in one case even removing a fragment of Joe Moore's skull as a macabre keepsake. The murders convulsed Velisca, particularly after a few clumsy and futile attempts to search the surrounding countryside for a transient killer failed to unearth a likely suspect. The simple truth was that there was no sign of the murderer's whereabouts. He might have vanished back into his own home nearby, equally given a head start of up to five hours in a town at which nearly 30 trains called every day, he might easily have made good his escape. Bloodhounds were tried without success. After that, there was little for the townspeople to do but gossip, swap theories, and strengthen their locks. By sundown, there was not a dog to be bought in Villisca at any price. The most obvious suspect may have been Frank Jones, a tough local businessman and state senator Who was also a prominent member of eliska's methodist church edgar epperly the leading authority on the murders reports that the town quickly split along religious lines the methodists insisting on jones innocence and the moore's presbyterian congregation convinced of his guilt though never formally charged with any involvement in the murders jones became the subject of a grand jury investigation and a prolonged campaign to prove his guilt which destroyed his political career. Many townspeople were certain he used his considerable influence to have the case against him quashed. There were at least two compelling reasons to believe that Jones had nursed a hatred of Joe Moore. First, the dead man had worked for him for seven years, becoming the star salesman of Jones' farm equipment business. But Moore had left in 1907. This may, perhaps by his boss's insistence on hours of 7 a.m., to 11 p.m. six days a week, and set himself up as a head-to-head rival, taking the valuable John Deere account with him. Worse, he was also believed to have slept with Joan's vivacious daughter-in-law, a local beauty whose numerous affairs were well-known in town thanks to her astonishingly indiscreet habit of arranging trysts over the telephone at a time when all calls in Villisca had to be placed through an operator. By 1912, relations between Jones and Moore had grown so cold that they had begun to cross the street to avoid each other, an ostentatious sign of hatred in such a minuscule community. Few people in Villisca believed that a man of Jones' age and eminence, he was 57 in 1912, would have swung the axe himself, but in some minds he was certainly capable of paying someone else to wipe out Moore and his family. That was the theory of James Wilkerson, an agent of the renowned Burns Detective Agency. When 1916 announced that Jones had hired a killer by the name of William Mansfield to murder the man who had humiliated him, Wilkerson, who made enough of a nuisance of himself to derail Jones' attempt to secure re-election to the State Senate, and who eventually succeeded in having a grand jury convened to consider the evidence he had gathered, was able to show that Mansfield had the right sort of background for the job. In 1914, he was the chief suspect in the ax murders of his wife, her parents, and his own child in Blue Island, Illinois. Unfortunately for Wilkerson, Mansfield turned out to have a cast iron alibi for the Villisca killings. Payroll records show that he had been working several hundred miles away in Illinois at the time of the murders, and he was released for lack of evidence. That did not stop many locals, including Ross Moore and Joe Stillinger, father of the two Stillinger girls, from believing in Joan's guilt. The rancor caused by Wilkerson lingered on in the town for years. For others, though, there was a far stronger and far stranger candidate for the Axeman. His name was Lynn George, Jacqueline Kelly, and he was an English immigrant, a preacher, and a known sexual deviant with well-recorded mental problems. He had been in the town the night of the murders and freely admitted that he had left on a dawn train just before the bodies were discovered. There were things about Kelly that made him seem an implausible suspect, not least that he stood only 5 feet 2 and weighed 119 pounds. But in other ways he filled the bill. He was left-handed and Coroner Lindquist had determined from an examination of blood spatters in the murder house that the killer probably swung his axe that way kelly was obsessed with sex and had been caught peering into windows in valeska two days before the murders in 1914 living in winter south dakota he would advertise for a girl stenographer to do confidential work and that ad placed in the omaha world herald would also specify that the successful candidate must be willing to pose as model When a young woman named Jessamine Hodgson responded, she received in return a letter described by a judge as so obscene, lewd, lascivious, and filthy as to be offensive to this honorable court and improper to be spread upon the record thereof. Amongst his milder instructions, Kelly told Hodgson that she would be required to type in the nude. Investigation soon made plain that there were links between Lynn Kelly and the Moore family. Most sinister, for those who believed in the little preacher's guilt, was the fact that Kelly had attended the Children's Day service held at Velisca's Presbyterian Church on the evening of the murders. The service had been organized by Sarah Moore and her children together with Lena and Ina Stillinger had played prominent parts, dressed up in their Sunday best. Many in Veliska were willing to believe that Kelly had spotted the family in the church and become obsessed with them and that he had spied on the Moore household as it went to bed that evening. The idea that the killer had lain in wait for the Moors to go to sleep was supported by some evidence. Lindquist's investigation had revealed a depression in some bales of hay stored in the family barn and a knothole through which the murderer could have watched the house while reclining in comfort. That Lena Stillinger had been found wearing no underwear and with her nightdress drawn up past her waist This suggests a sexual motive, but doctors found no evidence of that sort of assault. It took time for the case against Kelly to get anywhere, but in 1917, another grand jury finally assembled to hear the evidence linking him with Lena's murder. At first glance, the case against Kelly seemed compelling. He had sent bloody clothing to the laundry in nearby Macedonia, and an elderly couple recalled meeting the preacher when he alighted from a 5.19 a.m. train From Villisca that June 10th, and being told that gruesome murders had been committed in the town, a hugely incriminating statement, since the preacher had left Villisca three hours before the killings were discovered. It also emerged that Kelly had returned to Villisca a week later and shown great interest in the murders, even posing as a Scotland Yard detective to obtain a tour of the Moore House. Arrested in 1917, The Englishman was repeatedly interrogated and eventually signed a confession to the murder in which he stated, I killed the children upstairs first and the children downstairs last. I knew God wanted me to do it this way. Slay Utterly came to my mind and I picked up the axe, went into the house and killed them. This he later recanted and the couple who claimed to have spoken to him on the morning after the murders changed their story. With little left to time firmly to the killings, the first grand jury to hear Kelly's case hung 11 to 1 in favor of refusing to indict him, and a second panel freed him. Perhaps the strongest evidence that both Jones and Kelly were most likely innocent came not from Villisca itself, but from other communities in the Midwest, where in 1911 and 1912, a bizarre chain of axe murders seemed to suggest that a transient serial killer was at work. Research has found that as many as 10 incidents that occurred close to railway tracks, but in locations as far apart as Rainier, Washington and Monmouth, Illinois, might form part of this chain, and in several cases, there are striking similarities to the Villisca crime. The pattern, first pointed out in 1913 by Special Agent Matthew McClary of the Justice Department's Bureau of Investigation forerunner of the FBI, began with the murder of a family of six in Colorado Springs in September of 1911, and continued with two further incidents in Monmouth, where the murder weapon was actually a pipe, and in Ellsworth, Kansas. Three and five people died in those attacks, and two more in Paola, Kansas, where someone murdered Roland Hudson and his unfaithful wife just four days before the killings in Villisca. As far as McClory was concerned, The slaughter culminated in December 1912 with the brutal murders of Mary Wilson and her daughter, Georgia Moore, in Columbia, Missouri. His theory was that Henry Lee Moore, Georgia's son and a convict with a history of violence, was responsible for the whole series. It is not necessary to believe that Henry Lee Moore was a serial killer to consider that the string of Midwest Axe murders have intriguing similarities that may tie the Villisca massacre to other crimes. Moore is now rarely considered a good suspect. He was certainly an unsavory character, released from a reformatory in Kansas shortly before the axe murders began, arrested in Jefferson City, Missouri, shortly after they ended, and eventually convicted of the Columbia murders. But his motive in that case was greed. He planned to obtain the deeds to his family house, and it is rare for a wandering serial killer to return home and kill his own family. Nonetheless, analysis of the sequence of murders and several others that McClary did not consider yield some striking comparisons. The use of an axe in almost every case was perhaps not so remarkable in itself. While there certainly was an unusual concentration of axe killings in the Midwest at this time, almost every family of rural districts owned such an implement and often left it lying in their yard, as such it might be considered a weapon of convenience, similarly the fact that the victims died asleep in their beds was likely a consequence of the choice of weapon and acts it nearly useless against a mobile target yet other similarities among the crimes are much harder to explain away in eight of the ten cases the murder weapon was found abandoned at the scene of the crime in as many as seven there was a railway line nearby in three including Velisca, the murders took place on a sunday night Just as significant, perhaps four of the cases, Paola, Villisca, Rainier, and a solitary murder that took place in Mount Pleasant, Iowa, featured killers who covered their victims' faces. Three murderers had washed at the scene, and at least five of the killers had lingered in the murder house. Perhaps most striking of all, two other homes, those of the victims of the Ellsworth and Paola murders, had been lit by lamps in which the chimney had been laid aside, and the wig bent down, just as it had been at Velisca. Whether or not all these murders really were connected remains a considerable puzzle. Some pieces of evidence fit patterns, but others do not. How, for example, might a stranger to Velisca have so unerringly located Joe and Sarah Moore's bedroom by low lamplight, ignoring the children's rooms until the adults were safely dead? On the other hand, the use of the flat of the ax blade to strike the fatal initial blows to suggest the murderer had previous experience any deep cut made with the sharp edge of the blade was more likely to result in the axe becoming lodged in the wound making it far riskier to attack a sleeping couple and the Paola murders have striking similarities with valiska aside from the killer's use of a carefully adapted lamp in both cases for example odd incidents occurred the same night that suggest The killer may have attempted to strike twice. In Velisca at 2.10 a.m. on the night of the murder, telephone operator Xenia Delaney heard strange footsteps approaching up the stairs and an unknown hand tried her locked door. While in Paola, a second family was awakened in the dead of night by a sound that turned out to be a lamp chimney falling to the floor. Rising hurriedly, the occupants of that house were in time to see an unknown man escaping through a window. Perhaps... The spookiest of all such similarities, however, was the strange behavior of the unknown murderer of William Showman, his wife Pauline, and the three children in Ellsworth, Kansas, in October of 1911. In the Ellsworth case, not only was a chimney less lamp used to illuminate the murder scene, but a little heap of clothing had been placed over the showman's telephone. Why bother to muffle a phone that was highly unlikely to ring at one in the morning? Perhaps, as someone posited, for the same reason that the Veliska murder took such great pains to cover the faces of his victims and then went around the murder house carefully draping torn clothing and cloths over all the mirrors and all the windows because he feared that his dead victims were somehow conscious of his presence. Might the Ellsworth killer have covered a telephone out of the same desperate desire to ensure that nowhere in the murder house Was there a pair of eyes still watching him? Please don't forget to like and subscribe to our show wherever you find us, whether it's on YouTube or any of the major podcast platforms. You can also find links to the videos and MP3 files at MiamiGhostChronicles.com or MarlenePardo.com. Again, you are all wonderful, and thanks for being part of my audience.